If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about decisions. We're talking about decision-making with a little extra, a little something more to it, a little bit of a entangled decision-making. What is that? What does that mean? How much do you want to have in a game? All that good stuff. And we're talking to Fabio Lopiano, a, a wonderful designer of games with entangled decisions. Fabio, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Gabe. Thanks for having me. Hey, man. Really excited to have you here. This is a, a topic a little bit off the beaten path. It's not one of those things that immediately comes to mind when someone is thinking about game design or a game design topic for a show or something like that. But I think it's something that people maybe uh, know about, if not in these terms. It's something they're already thinking about, but maybe they haven't actually defined it. And so I think it's a topic that is going to actually help a lot of designers be more intentional in their game designing and how players are interacting and things that you know, players at the table are, are thinking about and processing and strategizing and all that. I think it's something that's actually uh, really going to help people design better games that are more interactive or not, depending on the type of game that you're making. And so I'm excited to talk to you about Entangled Decision Making. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So yeah, my name is Fabio. And uh, yeah, I've been playing games uh, since I was a kid, but I started playing uh, more seriously around 2004. We do co-workers, basically. After work, we would uh, go to the library at the office and play games. So I've been playing like once a week, more or less regularly. And then uh, I kind of intensified that uh, when I moved to London. So I've been moving a lot for work. So wherever I move, I join the local group and start playing with them. That's a good way to integrate, I guess. And when I moved to London, I found this uh, London on board group with uh, thousands of uh, members basically every night there will be a meeting somewhere with like 50 people playing games and so i started playing like three or four times a week which is kind of increasing my <laughs> dependency on games i guess and there i, I started meeting uh, game designers so play testing their games and like getting some ideas and so that's how i started thinking about uh, making a game on my own and i started like with no pretenses just just uh, trying some ideas. And once I had a game that kind of worked, I almost by chance submitted it to the Hippodice competition, which is a competition in Germany, uh, which I surprisingly won. So as winner, I get uh, I got a few offers from publishers. So my first game got published very quickly, basically in 2017 was already out. So that was kind of a, a big unexpected change in my gaming career. So after that, uh, I kept designing game, and it was 
easier, I guess, to find publisher once you already have something out. So I managed to get uh, a few more games lined up after that. So that was kind of fun and unexpected, I guess. <laughs> yeah, very cool, man. All right, let's uh, let's dive right in to the topic. Let's get a good working definition. When you say entangled decision making, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so this term I think was first introduced by Seth Jaffe on the Twitter thread, and it's about having a single choice affecting two or more different outcomes. A good example is a game like Cascadia, which has been released recently by Aldrak where uh, you draft uh, at the same time an habitat tile and a wildlife token. So you have, uh, you're building a habitat with these tiles and placing animals, which are these tokens. And you're scoring according to different criteria. So you might have the perfect uh, tile for your habitat, but maybe it's paired with a token you don't really need. Or maybe you really need another uh, salmon, but uh, it's coming with a tile that you don't like. So basically, by having to choose both things at once, your decision becomes more interesting because with one single choice, you get both the tile and the token. Now, normally, if uh, you had a game where you, you draft separately a tile and that token, the game will become boring very quickly because you will always take the best tile and the best token and uh, there will be no much uh, difficult decisions to make. But by pairing these two apparently orthogonal things, you end up with a single decision that becomes much tougher because you need to compromise. You don't get the best of both. You need to take either something that's okay on both sides or it's very good on one, but not so good in the other. And that's kind of where the tension and the interesting uh, stuff come in the game. So because uh, many games, at least the kind of games I like, which is mostly Euro games, are about uh, interesting decisions. You need to kind of agonize between several choices and uh, entangling this Decision is a single choice will make the tension a bit higher. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you think about like what what makes a game fun, and often it's interesting choices. Mm-hmm. And whenever you play a game that the the choice is obvious, it kind of feels like the game is playing you. Like you're not actually playing the game because it's. I mean, there was only one choice, and it's almost. You know, you might as well just roll a die and see what it gives you. Oh, I guess I rolled three, and I'll, I'll do three. You know, and so I, I feel like this is a great way to introduce, like you're saying, more interesting decisions, but also a way to in, you know introduce fun. And so what are some things that designers need to be thinking about when they want to you know, create this entangled decision-making situation? Right. Yeah, so uh, this is actually something that comes up uh, often in playtest. So when you playtest a new game, often uh, you end up uh, being played by the game where like uh, every time you, you have like a, an obvious choice and a not so good choice, and you always take that. And so the suggestion I give uh, uh, when uh, I see this kind of problem is that I try to find uh, something to tie up to the main decision so that now you have uh, to compromise. And so if uh, on your turn you do two things, you can have a single choice or both instead of having two separate choices. And that turns around the problem of the being played by the game. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's uh, let's talk maybe some more examples. Before we started recording, you mentioned King Domino as a really good example. Tell me about how that one works. The, in King Domino, you're basically, with in your turn, you're picking a tile, but depending on what tile you take will determine the turn order for next turn. So because you already see what are the upcoming tiles for the next turn, 
Sometimes you take a tile not because you really need that tile, but because you want to be first choosing next turn where there is an, an even better tile. And so the, the two uh, the dimension, like turn order and the current title place, are uh, entangled by the single decision of uh, getting bought. Yeah, definitely. All right. So you've mentioned different types of decisions as far as like maybe the tiles placement and that kind of thing. What are some of the main examples of different decisions that you can entangle? Like, like I said, where something's going to go, but like what else? Yeah. So um, normally in a game, you have uh, several things to do and uh, you want to entangle things that are not necessarily uh, already dependent on each other. So the more orthogonal they are, the, the better, because then you have less side effects on what you're choosing. And uh, and so uh, turn order and what tile to place is one way, or like what tile to place and what token. And um, I, know I can give you some examples on my games of how I did uh, uh, this kind of uh, entanglements. Yeah, let's. I want to dive into some of your games more specifically in a second, but but real quick, just give me some general examples. So, like placement is one. Maybe the resource type is another. Yes, like the, what resource you get, what action to do. Because uh, if uh, for a given action you need a certain resource, but the the, the pairing is not always uh, perfect, then the decision becomes interesting. For example, if you have a build action that requires wood, but uh, when you take that action, you get uh, food instead. Then you need to use this food on your next action. And then the next action, you want to take an action that requires the foods, but then that gives you something else. And so that kind of, uh, uh, often uh, these uh, decisions like this, with uh, they, they might uh, um, steer you to doing different things than what you initially planned. Because... Uh, when you do the action that you want, you also get a resource that you don't need for that action, but you might need for a future action. And then in the future, you try to then uh, capitalize on the resource already collected for, and and, 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 and so pick an action that was not in your original strategy, but now that becomes now in appearing because you have the resources needed to do it. And so that's like one way to kind of also um, because another pr- problem that often you have in games is that uh, you have maybe four different strategies and each player picks one and they go on their own on that. But by entangling the action of one strategy with things that push you toward other strategies, then you kind of uh, attempt uh, players to kind of uh, differentiate and try something else because now they have an opportunity that they didn't plan for because it was coming as a freebie with their mind choices. Right. It also seems like this is a great way to prevent your game from being solved, so to speak, where a player starts the game and they know exactly what they're going to do and they're going to go you know, do this on, st- on uh, round one and this in round seven. And this introduces randomness without feeling too random, right? So especially if yeah, the entanglement is random, so you have a random pairing of things, then uh, you don't know at the beginning of the game what uh, will happen. Or even if the pairing happens at setup time, that already make every game very different because there is no strategy that works for all setups, but only based on what's paired in a given startup will affect what's a good strategy for that uh, configuration. Right. All right. So we, we've mentioned several things or several reasons why people should be aware of this and, and you know be thinking about these decisions and entangling these types of decisions in their game. Give me, give me some more though. Like, what else? Why, why, in your opinion, should game designers be aware 
of this type of design entangling the decisions? Like, what are some other reasons? Obviously, because it might make the game more fun or create interesting strategies, but anything else you want to add? Well, I mean, it's not that every game must have this, but uh, that makes for an interesting type of game. It's, uh, I think it's just a tool like many other tools. And then uh, it's also up to your preferences. So I like uh, to um, this this kind of mechanism because it provides uh, more uh, um, varied puzzles to solve. Like as I said, you don't solve the game at the beginning, but uh, every time you are you are faced with a different uh, configuration, so you need to kind of solve a different puzzle. And uh, another thing that you can do with uh, this tool is to entangle um, side effects that are for other players. So I can do one action, which is just my choice, which does what I wanted to do, but uh, attached to it is an effect that affects other players. And so that keeps everybody uh, invested in the game because they will get something out of turn. And they are kind of waiting for what you will do and how that will affect their tool. So that's another way to um, entangle two things. Right. This seems like a great way to keep other players involved, especially if you are removing tiles or cards or resources like that from a common pool where I'm planning my next turn, looking at what's on the board, but I'm not entirely sure what you're going to take. And so I need to be paying attention to see how my personal strategy might change. Now I can see how that might also introduce a little bit too much uh, chaos, right? If, if I'm not going to have a turn for three or four turns, and who knows what the board's going to look like by the time it gets around to me. Right, but it's more like uh, um, if, I, let's say, if I take a given action, I give you one gold, and then if I take another action, I give my player to the left one width. So you can entangle these kind of things. So uh, the uh, the side effect doesn't affect me, but affect the player next to me. And so that player will be involved in my turn because they might get something out of it. And maybe they might hope that they take a certain option other than another because that option will give them something other than something else. Yeah, it's super interesting. And again, a great way to keep people engaged at the table and, and not just checking their phone or you know pondering life's great mysteries, looking off into the distance, but you know keep people uh, thinking about what's going on. Yeah, so basically you need like two things, quick turns and uh, keeping players involved by giving them something when you do like, I mean, the classic example is like Puerto Rico, where one player picks an action, everybody does it in a kind of smaller way. And so having a way to keep everybody involved uh, is always uh, good for, for games. Yeah, I think I've seen this also in certain like worker placement games where players can place their workers on other people's buildings or other people's cards and then they have to pay them gold or, or something like that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this action for me, but then you get a benefit because it's on your player board or, or your side of the board or something like that. And then, you know, just do little things like that. Yeah. And sometimes you need a choice. Like, do, do I really need that action so badly that I have to give him uh, somebody else to like the other player? So that's another uh, thing to consider in your choices. Like, uh, not how much this action is benefiting me, but how much am I benefiting the others? Because sometimes, that extra resource you're giving to the next player can be like uh, game changing. So you might not do that. They actually really want to do. Yeah, for sure. All right. Are there any games in particular or types of games or themes or anything like that that kind of lend themselves to being really good for this type of design? Well, I mean, um, I'm mostly, um, 
experience it in uh, Euro games. So that's like where I see this most, I guess. Uh, it, in games where you have some kind of economy, when you have resources and things like that, this works pretty well. I'm not, I'm not a big player of um, like more thematic games, so I'm not sure how that will fit in a, a dungeon climber, climber or something like that. <laughs> right. I, earlier you mentioned the puzzle of the game, and I think any any game that kind of has that puzzly aspect to it, where you're, you're trying to put pieces together on a turn or for a strategy, I think that makes sense. You know, games where you're just rolling a ton, a ton of dice and, and seeing what happens, maybe that this doesn't work quite as well, but I think it could. I think there's definitely ways that, that that could work. Maybe you have a certain face on the dice that anytime it's rolled, then other players are involved in some way or it gives them a benefit and maybe you don't want that. You know, I think there's lots of, of, of different ways to, to handle it. Of course, there's always uh, ideas to try. But... <laughs> uh, all right, so let's talk about like, how much is too much? Like how many decisions are maybe too many? You know, how many tiles out there? Do you have any kind of best practices on not overwhelming players with too many entangled decisions? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I think it's like the other way around. So it's like uh, how much is too little? <laughs> because uh, uh, the idea is that you have very few decisions, but that decision can have a cascading series of uh, outcomes. For example, and I can give you some example talking about how I did it in my games because, like, there is easier to understand. Yeah. So, for example, my first game, Kalimala, the the game is about it's like a, it's a simple game conceptually about uh, you know Florence uh, Renaissance. So, in this game, uh, players are um, weaving clothes and uh, shipping it uh, to various countries. It's a majorities game, so you need to kind of ship close of various cities and have the most there and other things like that. And uh, um, it's like a very simple, like nine actions. It's a three by three grid uh, with these nine actions. And uh, on your turn, you place a disc between two tiles with the two actions, and then you take both actions. So you cannot take any pair of actions, but only pairs that are next to each other. Now, in the game, you only have uh, 12 discs. So you do 12 uh, turns. Every turn, you play, you play a disc. But the, when you place a disc, it stays there between those two actions. So when another player plays a disc on top of yours, that player does the two actions, then the disc underneath, so which is yours, will be activated. So you do the two actions again. And then when the third player puts the disc on top, you have the first two actions from the player, the second two actions from the second disc, and then and the next like two actions for for the bottom disc. So basically, you have this cascade of effects. And so when you're doing an action, you're doing your turn, but you are also triggering turns from other players. And on top of that, when the fourth disc is placed, the top three disc will be reactivated as usual, but the bottom disc will trigger a scoring event. So we'll move to the city council where there is a, a sequence of uh, a scoring event which is also randomly set up. And so when you place the disc, uh, you need to think uh, what actions are you getting, whether the players underneath will be doing better than you, and whether you're triggering a score. And then if you're triggering a score, like who's, who's winning there? And so when you're with the simple decision of putting a disc in out of 12 possible spaces, you are actually um, in, you know, unleashing a series of events that are kind of it can be pretty complex. So that means uh, 
uh, even though you have only 12 choices in the whole game, each one of those choices will uh, spawn a, a cascade of effects and a cascade of actions. And so it becomes uh, very interesting to find what's the best spot where to put your disk. Because once you have very few disks, so everyone counts, and then where you put it will trigger actions now and will be triggered in the future when other people will go on top of your disk. And so it's like a, you have 12 choices in the whole game, but each one of those choices will have a lot of effects. So that's kind of one example of... A... That's super interesting. And in just a really cool way to handle action selection, you know, and I'm always amazed by Euro games that come out and do it differently, right? It really boils down to this action lets you build, this action lets you collect resources, this action lets you move. Like it's typically very similar actions across games, but the way you do it or the way you get to take those actions can be so varied and so different and so interesting in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, I'm always amazed by, by your games and their ability to figure out new ways to kind of come up with, it's again, it's a little mini puzzle. You know? Yeah, it's, that's like the, the fun part. It's like trying to find an interesting way to, to kind of mix the same things because in the end, they're always the same ideas. But uh, there's always some way to remix them in an interesting way. Yeah. And so, all right, back to my question a minute ago, though. As far as, like, overwhelming players, does it really come down to the type of game? So, for instance, King Domino, very much a family game, very light in general. You know, it doesn't have nearly as many actions or or entangled decisions as as the game you're talking about right now, as far as, like, 12 possibilities, and it's going to affect potentially every other player at the the table, and it's maybe going to give somebody points. Like, that's a lot going on. And so does it really just kind of boil down to the the game and who it's for? Yeah, of course. Like, um, each game should be tuned to their audience. And uh, But, I mean, the thing is that depending on what kind of decision you are uh, working with, uh, they can have, like, different level of complexities. So you can have a very simple family game or a much heavier. Now, the thing is that... uh, for if you try to go on the other end of the spectrum, so to go on very heavy games, then uh, um, entangling uh, becomes uh, less easy to do because uh, if the game is a very complex uh, Euro game, let's say, like a two hours kind of game, then uh, you want players to have a more flexibility because they, they probably are following a very long-term strategy, so they cannot... Uh, be distracted by the tactical effects of this. Because one thing that uh, entangling to um, different de- decisions in a single choice do is that uh, it makes the game a bit more tactical because uh, you can't really, you know, prepare a plan for like the, the next uh, 10 turns I will do this and then follow that plan. Because every time you take a decision, there will be side effects that were hardly um, pre-calculated. Like you cannot uh, foresee the side effects of all these actions. And so for very heavy games, I found it very hard to make it uh, work. For medium for medium weight, you're still good. Like uh, I think that Merve is a medium weight game and, and that it works there. But I, I recently worked on like heavier games and uh, even at the start, we had... Uh, more like intertwined choices, we had to kind of simplify a bit because the complexity was already in the long-term strategy for that game. And so that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just thinking through, okay, how long 
does my game take to play? Is it more tactical? Is it more strategic? Where does it lie? And again, just being intentional about that and kind of understanding who the game is for and, and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, because this also, um, um, is a tool that uh, lets you tune the um, strategy versus tactics. Like sometimes um, a game is too strategic, sometimes it's too tactical, you want the, the right balance. And so that's something that, that's a tool you can use to tune that. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's dive into some more of your games. Whatever next one comes to mind, tell me the name, tell me a little bit about it, and let's dive in. Um, yeah, so okay. after Kalimala, I did uh, Ragusa, which uh, kind of uh, pushes the idea of Kalimala a bit further. So in Kalimala, you take an action between two uh, two tiles and the bot. Uh, in Ragusa, you place a house between uh, three axes on a hex board, and then that triggers three actions. And then uh, some of these uh, hexagons are in the city, and when you place a house in the city, you trigger all the houses around that hexagon. So that's another way of, uh, I make one turn very simple, like place one house down, but that will trigger eventually lots of uh, side effects, both on your game, because you're uh, triggering the three axes around it, and two other players that already place next to that. So that's kind of an example of that. Now in Mer instead, which is like my latest game, or almost, um, the uh, the makers are very different, but there is still like you make one choice and that affects lots of things. And in Merv, basically, Merv was a um, city in the Middle East that was like at some point the middle, the biggest city in the world on the Silk Road, of course. And uh, in this in this game, uh, the city is like a five by five uh, grid of uh, buildings. Each buildings is a tile which is randomly shuffled. And uh, that tile contains a resource that it produces and one action that it provides. And in the game, um, the game lasts like three rounds, three years. Every year, you'll go, uh, you get four actions. So that's very, again, very few choices, like 12 choices in the game. Each uh, um, quarter of the year, basically, you place your main meeple along one side of the city. So, for example, at the beginning of the game, you will place your meeple along the north side, which are like five spaces. So each player will place the meeple in one of the five available spaces and activate the column corresponding to that. They pick up a building on that, and that building will provide some resources and provide an action. The resources you get depend on many buildings on that column as have an house of the same color, and the action depends on what tile you actually picked. And so you are with that uh, choice, you're getting a set of resources and an action, which might not be always the resource you need for that action. At the end of the turn, then depending on where your meeple was on that uh, along that line, you will uh, determine the new turn order for next turn. So starting from the left to right, each meeple will go at the back of the queue for next turn, and each player has an option to pay some commas to advance on that queue. And so when you're placing that uh, meeple, you are choosing not only what resources you get uh, and what uh, action will you take, but also where into order you end up for next turn. And so again, single choice, lots of outcomes. You can also choose to activate a building by owned by another player, so you collect their resources. They got some small uh, compensation. So like there is lots of uh, 
side effects that uh, you need to keep in mind. And another thing in MERV is that uh, you are building the, the wars because by the end of the second and third year, the Mongols will attack and will raid the houses and remove a bunch of houses from the board, possibly. And so when you place uh, a wall, so you can build walls or like or place soldiers to guard the houses, you can choose to defend one of your houses or to defend another player's house. If you defend other players' houses, you uh, advance, you, you gain influence, you advance on this track. So advancing in, in, in along that track will uh, open up new scoring opportunities because uh, the further you are on the track, the more contracts you can get, the more spices you can collect and so on. And so that's another decision. Should I defend my buildings or defend somebody else's? And if I do that, who is going to defend mine? <laughs> and uh, and that's another, um, that's kind of a symbol of uh, intertwining mechanism because uh, in Merva you, you have these things that when you build the house, the, the walls, you're, you are getting better and are getting spiders. So like when you so basically, when you do one action, you're getting better at something else. And that's another uh, you know, aspect of uh, entangling things. Yeah, gotcha. All right, so one thing that seems to be coming up over and over again is that the games get a bit more complex as they go because you're, you're entangling more and more decisions, right? So you talked about a game where, you know, I pick an action and then somebody goes on top of me and then on top of them. And like now all of a sudden we're cascading different effects. And, and so... Tell me a little bit more about that, because it seems like a good way to have a more complex game, but not to be super overwhelming right from the start, right? The things kind of build and players figure things out. I think that's kind of a common to all my games so far, where uh, your first turn is very small. You do one thing maybe, but then you get kind of familiar with all the mechanisms. And then by the end of the game, uh, you do one action that triggers a million things. <laughs> And so it's easier to get into the game. And so that kind of also creates a good arc. So it's important to have a good arc in the game where like the first and the last two are very different. And uh, you have this crescendo where you start slow and then every turn you do something more, you get something more. And then the last few rounds, you get a lot of things done. So at the beginning of the game, it looks like you'll never manage to do anything because if you look at your first two rounds, you didn't do much. But then... As things uh, get moving and you get more resources, you get more actions, toward the end of the game, you manage to actually accomplish more than you thought you would be able to. And that's the thing, it's a good uh, feeling for players. So that's something I'm trying to kind of... Also, by starting with the very small turns, uh, there is less risk of uh, screwing up <laughs> badly on your first move, which in some uh, games might happen, but... Uh, I try not to. So your first turn, uh, you can do pretty much anything. You won't lose again. You will lose it if you get the wrong uh, last or second to last moves. But the first two moves, and uh, my guess are usually more forgiving. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great way to design, in my opinion, especially when players are, are playing a game for the first time. And the last thing you want to do is go, oh, well, had I known, I wouldn't have made that decision on first or second turn. And now I'm, I'm going to lose because of, this I didn't even know how it worked, you know, and so avoiding that as often as possible seems good. Uh, you want a bit of both. You want that uh, when the game ends, if you lost, you, you you say, okay, I did this mistake, so next time I won't do that. But you don't want to realize that on your second turn. You don't want that uh, on your second move. You say, okay, I'm doomed. <laughs> that's that's bad. 
But you were to be able to pinpoint, okay, I had made this mistake uh, three months ago, and now I'm losing. But you want to realize that at the end of the game, so that now you want to play again. If you realize it too early, you you finish the game uh, on a very down note, and then you don't want to try it again. So that's kind of important uh, aspect. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so how do you know when to end one of these games? So you mentioned a game earlier, had 12, has 12 rounds. Why 12? Why not 10? Why not 15? Like, wh- what's your best practice? Or is it a gut feeling of just knowing when to leave people wanting more? There is something there. So basically, um, well, at least for my first, uh, like, games, it wasn't already out pretty much. Uh, I've tried to make sure I could play test them easily, so I try to keep them within one hour. So when I play test one of these games, I usually manage to end it in one hour. And so the number of tunes and the amount of things you can do is such that in an hour you get to do most of the things you want to do. <laughs> That's kind of my formula. <laughs> and so... Um, 12 actions or 10 actions actually are not uh, really 10 actions because uh, you, you have these chaining effects. But normally you want to be able to do like 30 to 40 actions in a game. But most of those actions are like uh, reactions more than actual actions. Ah, okay. And so that's actually a really good way to make the game shorter, but still have the same you know 30 or 40 actions in there, right? Yeah. Because, for example, in Kalimala, you place uh, 10 discs, but uh, those discs will be activated more than once, on average, two or three times. So basically, you end up doing uh, not 20, but like 40 or 50 actions, which are very small ones. And uh, there's a nerve, where, yes, you have only 12 turns, but in the last turn, you will be doing many more things because one. Uh, Concept in Merv is that uh, when you do an action, you can do it as many times as you can afford to do it. So if you collected lots of resources, then you can uh, you know build lots of walls or buy lots of books and things like that. And so even if it's like only twelve turns, in the last few turns you will be doing more stuff than in the first few turns. Right. This also seems like a great way to help players feel smart because they can set up their opponents that they can, if, if you can project out and go, okay, I think they're going to go here next. So I'm going to go there first. And then that way, when they go there, they're going to activate me again and I'll get a second action. You know, I think that's a really cool way to do it as well. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, um, aspect of this game is that uh, you don't only, you don't only think about uh, this tool, but how this will affect your future tools. But uh, in uh, Kalimana and Ragusa, where uh, you place a, a piece down and hoping that somebody will trigger it again later and knowing that it will happen. Or in uh, Bear, we try to put your building in a line. So you want to start building uh, this line of four or five buildings in a row so that uh, when the, the row is activated, you collect lots of stuff. And so you need to, from the beginning, start thinking about uh, how do I align all my houses so that I build this thing. Right. All right. Tell me maybe about some of your other games and how they approach it differently. Okay. So uh, my latest game is Zapotec, which uh, should have been uh, um, come out at uh, BGGCon, so like mid-November. And uh, in this game, uh, basically, you have uh, multi-use cards in a way, but uh, um, in the sense that uh, each uh, each card has like three functions and you trigger all of them at once. So it's not that you're not choosing which of the three 
Uh, to do. So basically, in this game, this game is uh, set up in uh, Mesoamerica. It's like a modern days game, and we are uh, the Zapotec civilization. So we are growing and building uh, houses uh, along the valleys. On your turn, uh, you play you play one card simultaneously. Uh, so each player has a hand of card to play one. That card has three type of, the types of information. There is the the what the where and the when. Basically, the what is like, what resources are you getting? Each player has a little three-by-three grid in their player board, which they will populate with tiles during the game. And the card they play will decide which row or column of that grid to trigger to to harvest, basically, to get resources from. So at the beginning, again, you only get one, but then as you build the buildings, you will be getting more ties to put on that uh, grid, so you will get more resources. The second piece of information on the card is the where. So the buildings on the main map have uh, three main aspects. So it's building as one type, one type of terrain, and one region in its own. And so each card will have one of these three information. For example, one card will say forest. So you can only build in the forest this turn. One other card will say Temple. So this tool, you can only build temples and so on. So this this uh, information on the card will restrict your choice of which buildings to build. And then the last information on the card is a number, which is the priority, so the turn order. So we all simultaneously play a card, and then who played the lowest card will get the resources and place their building and do some additional actions that will actually give you victory points in the end. And so you have this first uh, entanglement here where you have to take a card which decides three things. What you get, what where you build, and when you do it. At the end of your turn, uh, you then draft one card from uh, a market of available ones. Basically, every turn you play one card and then you get one more. So your number of cards doesn't change. Now, the cards you are getting from are the, the cards that were used in the previous round, plus a new one. So there's always one more than number of players. And now, uh, after everybody drafts a, a card from that market, the card that stays is uh, determining a, a scoring condition for next turn. So at the end of each turn, for example, if that card says forest, every player who builds houses on the forest will get two points for each house in that forest. And so, again, you are making a choice, which is what card do I get for my next turn, but also you are choosing what card will live on the table because that will probably score. And so that's another decision you are... And then uh, when you're placing a, a, a building, you are uh, on the map, you're taking back a tile. The tile will contain some resources. So when you trigger the row or the column, you get those resources. Now, where you put the building is very important because uh, there will be... During the game, you build pyramids. There will be some other uh, endgame scoring cards called rituals, which will score based on configuration of buildings. For example, when you build a pyramid, you decide one uh, aspect, for example, forest uh, or temples, and that pyramid will score for each forest, house you build, or for temple you build, and so on. And also the um, endgame scoring cards will have uh, uh, constraints, things like... uh, you get uh, six points for each uh, set of three houses with same terrain, a different uh, type. And so 
when you're placing the house down, you need to think, how does this house help me for the pyramid scoring, for the end game scoring? And do I need the, this tile or that other tile for my resource servicing? And so one single choice, lots of side effects. And uh, so even at the beginning, uh, in the first tour, you basically place two houses down because you will have enough resources for that. Those two houses are not uh, a random decision because they will kind of affect uh, the rest of your game because it will affect uh, what uh, pyramids you're trying to build in order to score for those houses or what uh, end game objective card are you having for and so on. And so these are all different ways where you make a, a few choices and uh, but the effects are big. And this game, the game lasts only five rounds, so you only play five cards. And maybe you will put down uh, up to nine houses, but those nine plus five, 14 choices have lots of uh, yeah. implications, so they're not easy choices. Gotcha. All right, tell me a little bit about your process when you're coming up with a new mechanism to do this. Like, it, tell me, like, how do you, like, where do you get your ideas or how do these things come about or how do you kind of work them out so that they are different, but at the same time, they're interesting, they're fun, they're bringing something new to the table? Yeah, I don't know. They have a, a very strict process, I guess. Uh, it really depends on the game. And some games uh, I start from, like, an idea of, uh, like, setting and like for Merv I just read about this city was very curious about that I read a bunch of stuff and then I tried to make a game that had some aspects like the Mongol attacking all these libraries and the spies and so on and then it's I think it's you know, I don't know if it's common process or not but I try to put something down just to get some balls moving basically so I uh, I get uh, I random action selection and some random things. And then I start doing some playtests and trying to find what works, what doesn't work. And uh, often what happens is that I start with a mechanism that uh, doesn't make it to the end of the game. <laughs> For example, in the case of Merv, I started with a dice drafting game. And then uh, as I add remove things, that uh, initial mechanism is more like a scaffolding so all the game is kind of built on top of this scaffolding. And at some point, the game has enough stability that you can remove the scaffolding. And then so I removed the dice drafting. And, and I saw like Zabodek was something like that, where I start from a completely different mechanism and then trying to add and remove, add and remove until every part kind of changed. So it's more like of a trial and error, I guess. And uh, yeah, uh, basically playtesting is the most important part and trying to find out uh, what's working, what's not working, what's interesting, what's boring, and trying to keep the interesting part, I guess. Right. All right, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So when you are playtesting, when you're either watching other people play or you're playtesting by yourself or with some friends or something like that, what are you looking for? How do you know when the decisions are entangled enough? Like what are some of the, the milestones or the key things in those playtests? You go, okay, yeah, I'm on the right track. Well, um, I'm looking at what players are doing. If uh, um, so, basically, you you can tell even uh, when you play yourself whether the decision you're making are interesting or not, and uh, you can see if players are engaged or distracted. Um, if uh, 
you know, they want to keep playing when you think the game is uh, is good. I mean, for example, I don't always want to end the game, but sometimes players want to finish anyway. So that's a very good sign. <laughs> and yeah, it, it, I don't know. It's lots of uh, observation, I guess. So you, because sometimes uh, now the the feedback is usually important, but it's not the main thing because uh, some playtester will always tell you what they would have done instead or what game they want to design, which is probably not the one you want to do. But uh, looking at how they actually behave and whether they, for example, you can tell the decision is interesting if people are struggling to find the best move. <laughs> or uh, um, you know, sometimes... Uh, uh, somebody might get annoyed because they don't. Yeah, they want to do something, but they want to do something else, and that might seem a negative. But sometimes it's a positive. So you need to kind of uh, gauge that by looking at what players are doing. It's like lots of uh, observation, and that, uh, and that's probably uh, a big problem with uh, like a new world where uh, most tests are going to um, done by. Uh, remotely, where you don't really see what people are actually looking like. You can guess, you can hear them complaining or not, but it's hard to tell whether they are reading news on the side or are involved in the game. Yeah, that's a really good point. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, a lot of times you can use these mechanisms for games that don't last two hours. But one thing I've learned is that playtesting online takes way longer than playtesting in person. It's just part of it. It, it adds two or three times the length of the game. And so that's another thing just to kind of be aware of. And I guess that's another thing that you're looking for, I assume, is like how long is this game taking to play and maybe I need to limit some things or limit the rounds? Yeah, so basically, yeah, that's a bit of, uh, you know, I guess, again, like trial and error. Uh, basically, you want to see how long it takes to accomplish a few things. And so, like how many turns the game is going to last is depending on... Uh, like, how long does it take to do certain things? For example, in Zapotec, you build these pyramids. And uh, normally, at least in many playtests, you everybody would be able to complete the pyramids in six rounds. So we decided to kind of run it down to five so that it was a bit harder to do it. And it's still doable. So you, you if you start your pyramid in your third round, you will finish it in the 15th time. But, uh, yeah, so basically, you want uh, the game to end uh, where people are almost done, not when they're already completely done. Otherwise, your last round, uh, you are bored. And so that's another. Yeah, it seems like you want these games to end right before people are ready for them to end, right? Right before you, you have just your engine or your everything going. That's because there will be, at some point, if you play a lot and you get good at the game, you end up uh, finishing everything one turn before, and then you don't know what to do in the last round which happened to me in some games I played. Like if you are like optimize everything and then you complete everything and now you have one more round where everybody else is catching up and you have nothing to do. <laughs> and so you don't want to end up in that situation. Yeah, for sure. And it's just something to, to be aware of. You always want to leave people wanting more because maybe they'll play it again. You know, maybe they'll go, hey, let's, let's run that back. Yeah, exactly. So because if I had that one more resource or one more action, so next time I try to get it. All right. Anything else you want to highlight or, or talk about, either based on one of your games, one of your experiences, anything like that? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, th I think we kind of uh, delved 
deep enough for this. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. So closing thoughts, what would you tell somebody maybe to encourage them or maybe to kind of help them along if they're designing one of these kinds of games or thinking about it? How, how can people design games with really good entangled decisions? Yeah. So basically you need to kind of look at what are the main decisions you're taking in as a game and try to find ways to uh, couple them. So, and you, know, you have, sometimes you have to come think about uh, outside the box sometimes. Like uh, normally in your game, you expect uh, one thing to happen first and then another one, but maybe you might find a way to make those two choices at the same time. And that might add the twist that you need. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, you mentioned a, a game's coming out at a BGG Con. Tell me a little more about that and where people can find it. Yes. So Zapotec, uh, yes, coming out to, at BGCom, which probably was last week or something like that. And uh, uh, it's uh, available, I guess, on the BGG uh, website. So you can uh, pre-order it, I guess, or order it on BGG.com, BorgenGeek.com. And uh, I don't know, they will deliver by the end of the year. Awesome. Well, Fabio, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with, uh, I know you've got a lot of games either coming out in 2022 or that you're cooking up. Yeah. So I, yeah, I have basically one game a year for the next uh, three years. <laughs> then uh, we'll see. Congrats on that, man. Yeah. But also because uh, uh, nowadays, uh, um, if you sign a game today, it will come out in three years. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's where we're at. And, uh, and, and ex- it's extending that by the day, it seems, with all the supply chain craziness and the shipping shenanigans. Yeah, exactly. So uh, anyway, good luck with all those games coming out soon-ish thanks. and everything else you got going on right now. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?